10 seconds, a child dies from hunger. In fact, by the time I finish this poem, 11 children will have died from hunger. I stomach the statistic while I sit wondering if halfway around the world or across the street from us, a child's hands yearn for something just a little bit more. I refuse to let this statistic sit in the back half of my brain because my mouth is full. I refuse to believe that we've got money for fighter jets and bombs, but no money for morsels for mortals who are too young to sign their name on the lease that is like Too young to put up a fight, but how can they fight when they've got nothing inside? Because I said, every 10 seconds, a child dies from hunger. Oh. One scary reason why two-thirds of all hungry children are girls. Having 347 million kids have no one to care for. That many people. You've given me less than five minutes to tell you why you should give a shit. Yeah. Yeah. Why you should give a shit that from the 60s, the world has only gotten hungrier. And of the 7 billion bodies on this earth, 11% do not get what they need. 800 million people and children went to school and the work this morning without getting something to eat. 9 million people will die before the end of 2019. Yeah. And now 10 seconds have passed since I began this sentence. And now I have to tell you that somewhere a child has died. And by the time this whole show is over, a mother will have started making funeral arrangements. I hope this information has startled you. Understanding that we have all turned a blind eye to a crisis is a tough thought process to go through. We're all gathered here in a church and yet it's not so useful. But I will not help you swallow this pill because somewhere a child has swallowed nothing. <laughs> That poem was titled An Angry Poem on Child Hunger by writer and poet from Toronto, Furkan Mohammed, who is this week's guest on Spill the Rue. I really enjoyed the conversation I had with Furkan. It was really enriching. It was really insightful and really inspiring. Um, mashallah, she is a beautiful soul, a beautiful person, very talented and gifted and this discussion definitely nourished my spirit, it nourished my soul, and it went by way too quick. And I hope, inshallah, I can invite her again in the future for another episode. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy this week's episode. I hope it is um, healing for you. I hope it is transformative for you. And I hope you learn something new. So here's this week's episode. Welcome to Spill the Rue, everyone. Today I am here with a really amazing guest. Her name is Farhan Muhammad. Farhan Muhammad is a writer from Toronto whose work centers around popular culture and social justice. Her writing is often inspired by her diaspora community and the stories that can stem from her from the shared human experience. She is currently an undergraduate student at the University of Toronto, and I'm super excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for taking your time out to be a part of Spill the Rue. 
Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm really pleased to be a part of this community that you guys have built. Alhamdulillah. So Farhan, tell me a little bit about your background and where you grew up and your story. Sure. So uh, like you said, my name is Farhan and I am from Toronto. Um, I am currently a university student. I have been writing uh, for a, like, I would like to say the most of my life, but I've been publishing online um, in print since I was maybe like 15, 16 years old. Uh, both my parents are immigrants from Somalia. Somalia has a really strong oral tradition um, and a culture of storytelling that I've always been really inspired by. And it, it definitely comes through uh, in the poetry and the essays that I write. Uh, and uh, yeah, I've been really lucky to just be able to share my thoughts on everything from things like eco-fascism to voting to concepts around feminism, sisterhood, community, online culture, and things like that. Uh, and being able to share it on, you know, platforms on the internet that are small and as well as, you know, big publishing uh, platforms in print as well. So yeah, I've been doing this for a little while now and inshallah, I get to do it for the rest of my life. Inshallah. Yeah, no, I've been um, following your work and it's so beautiful and inspiring and you did write something about voting. Tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. So as everyone knows, it's kind of inescapable. <laughs> the uh, 2020 election yeah. has been on people's minds. Um, I am Canadian, so voting works a little differently in my country. But um, everyone knows, you know, the United States presidency affects everybody. That's, you know, the consequence of a modern empire, I guess. But I wrote a piece for the Varsity, which is uh, USP's oldest um, newspaper, one of the oldest student-run um, and publishing platforms. People like Naomi Klein and, you know, former Canadian prime ministers have written for the paper. So it's really cool to have my work wow. um, on that platform. Yeah, as, as a young Canadian student. So I wrote a, an op-ed about voting and uh, it was basically a challenge to a lot of the rhetoric around, you know, this election. Of course, you know, Joe Biden is now president-elect, but um, the sort of energy and, and rhetoric around the idea that this election is somehow the most consequential election. And if you're someone who is critical of Joe Biden's record, then you want Donald Trump to win or, or you don't you know, respect that this is a consequential election. And my op-ed sort of challenged that a little bit by reminding people that a lot of the issues that Donald Trump seems to have raised in all our political imaginations, like immigration and feminist issues and women's issues and uh, issues around, you know, Islamophobia and racism that, you know, people like Joe Biden as an old politician, you know, someone who's been around for so long, it's not like he's right on those issues either, you know, mm -hmm. being the less of yeah. two evils still makes you evil, for lack of a better term, right? You know, right. the idea that somehow, you know, it always seems to be that, you know, we're always settling for a politician. We, we never get the leaders that we want. Yeah. We just have to settle, settle, settle. And it's been so weird, shocking, and kind of uncomfortable to see people lecture, you know, activists and progressives who say, you know, I don't vote or I vote third party and people saying, oh, you know, then that means you don't care. And it's like, no, people understand that these issues don't start and stop every four years. These issues are bigger than one politician and one presidency. And yes, even if you do vote for Joe Biden, and now we know that Joe Biden is and, and Kamala Harris you know, that ticket won and they're going to be in the White House. That doesn't mean like the work stops, like everything isn't fine anymore. You know, immigration is 
still going to be an issue under this presidency. Um, policing is still going to be an issue under this presidency. Um, wars in Middle Eastern countries and in Africa are still going to be an issue. Um, and lecturing people every four years and telling them that this is the most consequential election, just like they did in 2016, um, isn't, yeah. isn't the answer to some of you know, the biggest political, social, and economic issues of our time. Um, that you're gonna you're gonna have to do a lot of work. Like even if we do agree on a Joe Biden presidency, like we like we have now, like the work continues. Like this is not a you know voting isn't a silver bullet is basically the the thesis of of what I wrote. So I'm I've joined the long list of annoying think pieces about elections that have come up for the last few years. But I, I definitely encourage people to check it out because it's a, a conversation worth having. That's amazing. No, it's important. It's it's really important that we understand that just because he was elected and it's not Trump doesn't mean that like, okay, everything's okay. You still have to be aware. You still have to keep fighting and bring awareness. And there's so much work to be done, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's definitely something that everyone needs to kind of realize. And, and I think I've been seeing that now, like, oh, just because he's elected, like, there's still these issues that we have, like, they didn't just disappear. Right. Um, so... Do you, do you feel like, um, you know, like you said, you've been writing since you were 15, 16. Did you run into any um, any issues like with, with your like your writing, like in terms of like representation because you're a Muslim, because you're black, because you wear hijab? Did you have any issues like that? I think um, in the beginning of my, I guess, like <laughs> career question mark. I don't know. But in the beginning of when I started writing, I think that I was attracted to a certain um, stereotype or, or idea that I think a lot of young writers of color sort of fall into, which is the idea like, I'm gonna be different. Like I'm gonna rise above, you know, old expectations or I'm gonna talk about things like representation, you know? And and I, mm-hmm. I did actually like the very first piece of writing I published online, I think I was 15, um, was for a, a blog run by, um, like a, a young woman in the UK, I think it's called Into the Fold. And I wrote about how a, so, um, hmm, I'm trying to remember, it was, a, it was a Somali film. So it was a movie about Somalia. Mm-hmm. Like my, my parents are both from there. I'm a Somali Canadian. And the actress playing the woman the movie is about, you know, it's like, a, it's a, what do you call it? Like it's an autobiographical film. So the actress they picked mm-hmm. is not Somali. She's African-American. And I wrote that like it's, it's not enough you know like you can't you can't yeah, you can't make yeah. you know black people are not interchangeable brown people are not interchangeable if you're making a Somali film if you're making a film about Somalia then you should have a Somali actor and that was like my hot take at 15. <laughs> I was like that's, yeah that's that's, that's that's my take and I think about what I would write now and I think what I would yeah. write now is like um like films like don't go for like my critique would be about movies in general like why do we make you know movies about certain continents you know certain parts of the world for mostly white audiences so that they can you know through their liberal eye be like oh look at this poor feminist you know needing issue in Somalia because at 15 I was like we need Somali actors to tell this story and now at you know yeah, 19 yeah. I'm like we don't need any movies for the white gaze <laughs> like my take has changed yes, com- yeah. completely I, th- I think I've grown a little bit so I think that's the sort yeah. of you know um there is that you know cliche about like diaspora poets or diaspora writers about like needing to write about 
hunger and suffering and things like that. And there definitely was a, a phase where I was like, I'm never writing about suffering again. I, I had that earlier this season after what happened with George Floyd and, um, mm-hmm. you know, Breonna Taylor, where I told myself, like, I'm not writing about Black people dying at the hands of the police ever again, because it's just too much for my mental health, for other Black people's mental health. And now I've sort of come to the conclusion where, like, there needs to be a healthy balance. We can write about pain and suffering through, like, an empathetic and understanding gaze, not just for the white liberal gaze, where it can be like, oh, look at this, what we call, like, poverty porn or trauma porn or things like that. And yeah, we can yeah. we can also write a lot about joy through the lens and through the experience of, of Black people and people of the diaspora. It doesn't have to be an either or, but like I said, I definitely when I was younger, kind of, I think, fell into the trap of like, believing that representation was enough. Or if we just had Muslim people write about Muslim things, then all the Muslim problems would be fine. (laughs) And now that I'm older, I I definitely realize like representation is not enough, like any critique or analysis I have of any art piece or any film or any piece of writing has to go a, a little deeper than that. That's really beautiful. I really, I agree with that completely. And I feel like, I mean, just the fact that you're so aware at the age of 15, because not everyone is, Mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, being a teenager, there's so many things that you kind of go through and challenges. And at 15, mashallah, that's, that's really amazing that you, you. you're so aware about that. And like, where where do you feel like you got that confidence and that, that, that voice? Is that something that you always had? Um, I think so. I tell myself that I don't know. And then I find like, you know, I when I was in middle school, there was this thing called like a like a speech competition where basically every grade had to like write a speech and then one person would represent each grade like at an assembly about an issue that they picked. And I had like the most amazing teachers in middle school who let me write about what I wanted and told me that my voice was important and I look back on that and I think what was like third grade me doing talking about this issue you know (laughs) and I just I remember you know just like I ask myself that all the time like where does that come from um because now that I'm older I definitely experience like I think like a lot of young people who have you know arts and and hobbies and talents like that feeling of imposter syndrome where it's like, okay, mm-hmm. I don't, why, why should, why should people care that I wrote this thing? Why should people read my work? Why should people come to my shows? Why should people, you know, support me? But when I was young, I think, I think when we're all little kids, unless you're more of like an introverted person, I think children, like they don't care. <laughs> kids do what they want to do. Yeah. <laughs> they make what they want to make. They'll speak in it if there's only one person listening um, so I was just really lucky that I had teachers and, and my parents, especially, who, you know, I, I remember watching the nightly news with my dad. I remember watching Jon Stewart's daily show with my dad and and knowing, like, what was going on in the world. And, of course, like, every immigrant child has, like, this double awareness of, like, the issues of back home and the politics of back home, while also trying to navigate, right. like, being American or Canadian or, or, you know, being in the West as well. So I just, I had adults around me who encouraged me. My parents never put like a limit on what I could read or or ever told me that something was like too difficult. 
if I could read it, if I could sound out the words, then that was good enough. <laughs> I could just, you know, have, yeah. I could just get my hands on it. But yeah, I think that, I think that just being really fortunate, alhamdulillah, with the adults in my life, supporting me and telling me that like my voice mattered, but also now that I'm a grown up, trying to get back to that like childhood innocence and that confidence of like I'm important too. <laughs> that I think all of us are trying yeah. to, all of us are trying to on some level, I think like honor our inner child and sort of get back to that that place that we were where we didn't really care what other people thought of us we just we just wanted to be and I think that's what I'm trying to I'm trying to do now yeah that's so powerful and yeah it's just so like amazing to think that like you know how children are you know they like you mentioned they don't care they're so courageous Mm -hmm. and how we just lose that that spirit as we grow up yeah and yeah definitely and you know what you have mashallah that's a gift you know that's a, that's you. a superpower yeah. that you have so you know may that be as a means of you know goodness you know you already are spreading a lot of goodness and awareness inshallah thank um, you inshallah yeah of course um so what about like if can you tell me a little bit more about um so you write mm-hmm. and you also write poems mm-hmm. and I want to know more about the power of poetry. Yeah. What is what what do you what what has that done for you? And have you seen um, have you seen any difference in terms of like maybe your family and friends? Like I know you have a very supportive family, but do you have anyone in your circle that maybe had different ideas than you, and they, those ideas were impacted by your writing or your poetry? Mm-hmm. It's it's so funny when I write like um, a more like analytical piece. I wrote the, you know, voting piece about the 2020 election and how, you know, voting isn't going to save us. My dad read it and, you know, he forwarded it to like everybody in his office and his friends. And he was like, this, this is, this is my my daughter wrote. It's so interesting. And when I write a poem, he's like not entirely sure what's going on. (laughs) He's like, he's (laughs) like, huh, okay. You know, like he thinks it's interesting. Like he cheers me on, but like I, I totally understand like yeah. it's a totally different thing like the the sort of um like he my dad you know and my mom they don't really get poetry I think the way that like mm-hmm. other people you know it's so funny I know um I know adult poets like that have their own kids and their kids don't get poetry at all and so and I'm like the opposite. Like I write poetry and my adult parents don't get it at all. So I think it's just yeah. like, it's, it's just something like that you, I don't want to say it's within you, but like you sort of like have to come to it yourself, like poetry and an understanding of it and like enjoying it. It's not for, it's right. not for everybody, you know, the same way. Like I, I suck mm-hmm. at math. I'm not a math person at all. Mashallah to like all the math people oh, out there. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So it's just one of those, right? it's just one of those things you have to come to on your own, but I'm like I said, my parents are from Somalia, and Somalia has a really rich poetic history and a history of of storytelling through, you know, really clever and you know alliteration and um, analogy and things like that. Like there is a history of storytelling, um, much like you know indigenous storytelling and South American storytelling um, in Somali culture. So I I want to say it's in my blood. I want to say you know even if my parents don't yeah. get it, like I I come from that. But yeah, I, I, like I said, I had teachers who were really supportive. So they exposed me to a lot of, of poets and shared, you know, writing that I thought that they thought I would enjoy with me. And I have, you know, Maya Angelou, 
and uh, <laughs> you know, all these other poets sitting on my shelf yeah. as I speak to you right now. Um, so I just, I learn from them. And I, I also keep in mind, like I said, my cultural, um, you know, like the lineage that I, I have a, a right to uh, because of, you know, because of being Somali. But I haven't really faced um, any sort of personal challenges when writing except for you know like I said earlier that whole what you know what do you write about you know do you write about pain and suffering do you write about joy and are you doing a disservice to anybody if you choose either or you know so I don't I don't know um when maybe I can ask you I know this is supposed to be an interview with me but I would love to turn the question on you when when you're creating space or when you're creating you know an event or doing something like this do you ever find um, yourself asking like what will other people think or or how how the diaspora will react or what you know personal yeah, challenges yeah. you face yeah so I mean for me it's I'm kind of like all over the place <laughs> because um, my family has an or- a Muslim organization and we you know plan and host a lot of events for cool. the community and then I also have my own business and I create my own art and then I started group platform so it's kind of just like me kind of navigating all of those things along with my career. And um, Alhamdulillah, in terms of my family, like they're very supportive, you know, Um, Alhamdulillah. And that's, I'm really thankful for that. And I think that if you have a supportive family, that that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. So like if your family's supportive and and everyone around you is like, you know, they're they're doing everything they can to stop whatever it is you're doing, Mm -hmm. that doesn't matter. so I think for me, I I really don't care what people think in this, in like, like, I, like, not in a mean way, but really in the sense that, like, I really, it doesn't matter to me because I know what I'm doing. I know my intentions. Yeah. I'm doing it for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And, um, you know, sometimes the events that we host in our organization are, quote, unquote, controversial or people don't agree with them because they have different views, like Islamic views mm-hmm. and okay that's fine and and but that doesn't mean I'm going to stop doing it or planning you know those specific events so those are some challenges that that we go through as an organization and obviously that impacts me as well yeah. um but if anything it kind of just makes you stronger like throughout the years I mean um if we go back to the organization that's something that I kind of grew up with you know like my parents started it when I was I don't know like 10 mm-hmm. years old um so it's impacted like you know all of my childhood my teenage years and now you know adulthood and so I've kind of really just grown into it, into it, and it, um, and I think that's kind of in the basis for me to have that con- confidence in starting my own projects and leading yeah. things um, in my own way, you know, and not being afraid um, about what other people are going to say because, in the end, you don't have to answer to them. And unfortunately, people they always have something to say. No one's ever going to be pleased, and that's just the nature of this mm-hmm. dunya. So, um, yeah, I think. I think it's just keeping that focus that you know you have to answer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and if you are able to do that and you're you're just trying to aim for that then inshallah things kind of do fall in place despite the challenges I think Allah does provide a sense of ease and um, contentment yeah so that's so beautiful and so well said yeah I think that um yeah mashallah I think that sometimes um, I love what you said about intention because I think that sometimes when you're trying to please everyone or you're trying to write something that you think will get attention or you know post something that you think will get attention especially because we live in like the 
like information commodification age where you post something and then you get like a hundred likes and boom serotonin to your brain you're like oh I did this so I I should do I should do this again and again so people pay attention to me but when you think about intention and you ask yourself like why am I doing this who am I doing this for does this contribute to the conversation and you you know think about your intention and what you know trusting what Ilahe says then like that is that's that's it like what more what more do you need exactly yeah and I feel like that's kind of where Rue platform mm-hmm. started I I just felt like I don't know it was just one day I I'm not even sure when exactly I thought of this it was probably sometime during undergrad I just felt like that I needed to provide this space for younger Muslims to kind of be more self-aware like I know there's there's been a lot of like great projects and initiatives with like Islamophobia, mm-hmm. modest fashion, I mean, different things, you know, but I felt like I, I wasn't seeing something that was more about your spirit, about like going back to that concept of like contemplation and self-awareness mm-hmm. for, for Muslims. Um, and so I wanted to provide a space like that where, you know, you can come into this space and you can feel comfortable and your voice is amplified through your different experiences because everyone has everyone is born with something amazing that Alyssa Montal has written for that person. Um, And, you know, we all go through different things and we can learn from each other. And so it's kind of the basis of all of this. And so I, you know, um, I guess going into Mm -hmm. that, what do you say feeds your spirit? Oh, that's such a big question. I, I think that one of the things that feeds my spirit is, is, ultimately like laughter like I, I think that laughing and and having oh, a good beautiful. time like the fact that laughter is sunnah like just makes me feel so much better oh, about yeah. it I have a really wonderful group of girlfriends that come to laugh and you know I, one of my amazing friends oh, her no. name is Nawal I'm gonna shout her out she does this um thing where like she'll check in with us and she'll ask us if there's like a piece of poetry or something that we want to share with each other that's like been you know sitting on our head something we've been meditating on recently and I love that like laughter Mm -hmm. and community but also like knowledge sharing I think like learning from other people especially because like knowledge is also sunnah right like educating oneself is also something that you know God like smiles upon so those two things like laughter and like learning from other people feed my spirit because I think that you know, I don't want to say this is our generation because, you know, our, I'm sure older generations feel this as well, but especially because, you know, we live under like late stage capitalism and there's like this feeling Mm -hmm. of competitiveness with other people and other young professionals and young artists, like this idea, like I have to get what's mine. And if I get what's mine, then like everyone else be damned. But once you start seeing other people, not as competitors, but like people you can collaborate with and like learn from, like it, it's it's so freeing yeah. like your spirit calms down like alhamdulillah you're not yeah. anxious anymore you're not trying to like oh this person got this this person won this award this person gets to do this and I didn't get it once you realize like no like I can root for other people I can applaud for other people and I can also get what's mine because what's written for me is already mine right people aren't necessarily competitors yes. they're people I can learn from and when they win we all win you know and, and I I so yeah definitely yeah. like those three things like laughter um community and like learning with other people and also just like learning to like applaud when other people win like subhanallah like those are the three things that definitely feed my spirit and allow me to be not just like a, a better writer a better student but like a better 
you know, steward of my community and, and, and this planet that I'm on. Oh, that's so beautiful, mashallah. Yeah, I love that. And I love how you tied it back to the sunnah, mm-hmm. you know, because the Prophet is our teacher, you know, he is the best of creation. Mm-hmm. And like, when you, as you were mentioning laughter and how that was a sunnah, I was just like thinking about like the different hadiths where the Prophet would smile, at, you know, when somebody would make mm-hmm. him laugh, because oftentimes he would go through these difficulties of grief. And, um, and so the companions would, you know, um, do things to make him laugh. And I just thought about that. And it was just so beautiful while you were mentioning all of that it kind of all just came together. So thank you mm-hmm. for sharing that. It's, it's really, it's really inspiring just to hear, you know, different perspectives. I definitely agree. Um, that definitely feeds my spirit. I, I love hearing different stories, um, you know, of, of people of like what they go through and like what their thoughts are like that. It's just, it's really beautiful to listen mm-hmm. to that. Um, and being in nature, I love, I just love just being in nature and whether I'm just sitting in the backyard, like lying on the yeah. grass, like immediately at my mood, just lift, like lifts up. Um, so yeah, those two things are definitely they, they feed my spirit so beautiful and you were mentioning um that you're from somalia mm-hmm. i have a really good friend asma i'm gonna sh- uh, shout out <laughs> to asma she was in the previous episode when we talked about tying yeah. your camel um and we actually recently have been talking about um poetry in somalia and um you know it's just so beautiful like i love i love poetry you know i've always loved poetry and um I've really been into like Urdu poetry and Persian poetry, you know, because I'm from Pakistan and all of that. But I love poetry from like different traditions and different cultures. And um, uh, for for like Somali poetry, do you have um, any specific like poem that you that really resides with you or that you re- you can really oh, connect that's to? That's such a good question. Thank you for asking me. Um, I yeah. So- one thing that is incredibly popular in Somali culture is Burambur. So it's during, you know, when a child is born, sometimes during birthdays, but especially during weddings. And what it is, is basically like the way that I liken it, and I, I don't want anybody in like the diaspora to come for me, but the way that I liken it to is it's essentially like freestyle hip hop. What happens is like a woman, typically like an older woman who like knows people in the community will sort of start to like rhyme about like the bride and the groom and her mother and his mother and her father and his father and like shout everybody out yeah and like she'll mention like tribal names and like where people are from specifically like what geographical location and like say blessings upon their new home and their new family and say like we're all so happy to celebrate with you here today And, and it's one of the I think like the coolest like you can't get any sicker than that like someone freestyling for you at your your wedding and yeah. <laughs> one of the things that um my mother always says to me and I hope I don't butcher it and it's it's not a famous poem I'm sure every young Somali person has something that their someone in their family their mother their father their grandma like says to them and it's it rhymes it also has alliteration in it very big alliteration is like the when I in my personal humble opinion one of the most coolest and like signature parts of Somali Barambodan poetry is the ability to use words that start with the same sound in the same sentence um and one of the things yeah one of the things that my mom always says to me um is 
so if even if you don't speak Somali you can sort of hear in that like the way the, the words the beginning of the yeah. words all have the same letter and essentially what that means you know Fuqan is my name so Fuqani Fi'ane the the fine Fuqan the excellent Fuqan when I had you um my spirit settled my head settled and all my troubles and worries went away and I right I, so I literally like I have that I know I literally like not to cry whenever I recite that because it's one of the most sweetest things really something that brings me strength in my day-to-day and whenever I'm feeling low and it's just it's not only an example of like my heritage and like the tradition but also the really you know alhamdulillah like the close-knit relationship I have with my mom so yeah it is it is one of those things where it's like oh that's like my culture <laughs> but that's also like for me like as an individual uh so yeah I'm thank you yeah. for letting me share that with you of course so are you a fluent in Somali fluent then? is a really strong word <laughs> I I am I am like moderate I can I can speak and understand yeah <laughs> okay so is there something in uh, in Somali that you is can say right now I can say in Somali right now um Oh God! <laughs> I can. All the aunties <laughs> are gonna hear this, and they're gonna be like, "Furqan, Furqan needs to be shipped back home ASAP for remedial Somali." <laughs> oh my God! It's the effort. It's um, all about the effort. I would say, what would I say in Somali? I would start off, of course, with "Salamu alaykum," and I would say, um, "Oh my God!" I would say. Well, what's funny is like in the in the beginning, if you had asked me this question, I would say like I would say shekhazi, what could you see? Which means like which if you're being funny, like can kind of translate to like give me the tea or like spill the tea. But also it means like let's start this conversation. Yeah. So if you had asked me in the beginning to say something in Somali, I would have said, oh. Hiya shekhazi, you see, you know, what come ahead which means like what are we what are we talking about? <laughs> oh, that's so cute. <laughs> so cute thanks for sharing that is there like a really large Somali population oh my in god Toronto? yes we are <laughs> we run the culture it's so funny Toronto Toronto slang Toronto arts Toronto sort of like motifs are typically from the Somali and the Jamaican diaspora like that's where like that like that's oh who, gosh, yeah that's it's amazing. funny like a lot of the slang especially especially Jamaican slang um, which can sometimes be really offensive when like people who are not Jamaican <laughs> try to you know engage in that and uh-huh. then say yeah. oh it's a Toronto thing Mm-mm-mm. not not really it's also a, it's a, really a Jamaican <laughs> thing but yeah a lot of the verbiage yeah. a lot of the slang a lot of like the the words um, that people throw around come from Somali as well which has been really like fascinating to watch so yeah there's a huge uh, population in Toronto but in Canada in general we have a really strong I think Somali presence I don't know I I don't know if other Somali Canadians would disagree but I am constantly inspired by young Somali people not just in art but also like in medicine and in politics in in my city in particular so I'm very lucky alhamdulillah to have people who look like me yeah that's amazing yeah Wow, I need to visit Toronto. I've been wanting to visit Canada <laughs> and, for so long. Safe? But anyway, now it's probably <laughs> not safe, Inshallah, time. you should come. It would be lovely, yes. Inshallah, yeah. Inshallah. Have you visited the States? Mm, I went to Buffalo when I was little. Does that count? <laughs> That's, 
Okay. That's, I, I that's, mean, that's yeah, like that the counts. furthest I've been to the United States. Yeah. Okay. Well, you have to come to Utah, and I have to show you all. Oh of my the God, Utah parks. looks. Utah looks so like gorgeous. like the forest. It's just so funny. Like Canada also looks like one big fat forest. <laughs> so I would love to. Yeah. Uh, Utah sounds great. Yeah, it's really amazing. Like the over here, like it's it, we're blessed with like there's like it's a dry desert, but there's also like lots of lush mm. greenery, like you mentioned. So we kind of like have a mix of everything. Um, so we're lucky yeah. to have that. Um, and I moved from Chicago, where you know there there's not like natural beauty. You know, there's forest preserves, but they're not there's not mm. like mountains or anything. Um, so it was kind of like weird when I moved here, like I, seeing the mountains. Like I I always associated it with something negative when I was a child because I was like I'm away <laughs> right. from Chicago <laughs> but now that I'm here like I you know growing up with it it's really like thrown on me and it's such a blessing to have like be surrounded yeah. by natural beauty do you find yourself going so, out more like with lockdown like I mean like of course practicing like safety measures but do you find yourself like hiking or being more in tune with nature because I feel like that's one of the things that's come out of not being able to like gather in like shopping malls or or places like that during COVID, yeah, people are just finding themselves more in tune with nature. Do you find yourself being more, you know, wanting to be more outdoorsy? So, because Utah, like that's like mm. the main thing here, right? Natural beauty, mm. going to the mountains and hiking—that's something that oh, like no. <laughs> everyone normally does. And now, <laughs> because that's the only thing to do, whenever I would mm-hmm. go out with like my family, there'd be just a bunch of people up in the canyon and. Um, so yeah, definitely in the, towards the beginning, in the beginning, we were going out more, I was going out more hiking and walking around and just, you know, enjoying and now there's just so many people out there. So it's just like, we're like really mm-hmm. selective about it. Um, because it's like, okay, now it's like defeats the purpose right. of social distancing. <laughs> um, and sometimes you're like hiking in this, like on this narrow trail and then there's like a family oh. coming on the other side. And so we're all just like putting our masks back on. So it's interesting like navigating that um but you know everyone's trying their best um and so it's it's hard it's like okay mm-hmm, well where else do we go so it, it, that's a little bit of a challenge but how is it it's, like over there like yeah I mean, it's kind of the same thing it, I mean we're we just Toronto and like the surrounding areas just entered into like an, another phase of lockdown because people just don't seem to be wanting to listen to COVID restrictions but also I think one of the things that we never seem to talk about is yeah. um, like the economic side like if you're a working class person you have to be outside <laughs> and if you you know like you have to go to work and right. if we you know paid people to stay home if we had stronger social services if people would check up on seniors and vulnerable people and people with disabilities then maybe more people could stay home um, and if more people qualified for assistance um, because we do have some sort of like assistance program here in Canada, unlike the states. Because I know you guys had like one stimulus check, mm-hmm. I think, or something like that. And we we've had yeah. like alhamdulillah, yeah. like things are yeah. different in Canada. We've had a few a few like actual months of financial assistance, but not everybody qualifies because of really oh, yeah. weird liberal means testing policies. Which it'd just be easy if we just sent everybody a check, but there are you know rules and. Not everybody has an easy way to apply or has someone who can help them apply. So it's it's just been so funny watching our ideas of like how politics and policy should work sort of fall apart with this one, you know, health crisis. But so far, it's it's been good. Like, I'm very lucky, alhamdulillah, to be able to stay home, um, do all of my schooling online, 
sort of getting used to like Zoom meetings and Zoom fatigue, <laughs> which I never thought yeah. was a thing until I realized, oh, like, yeah. why do I feel more emotionally spent when I'm on Zoom than I would if I was talking to this person in real life? It's such a weird thing. Like the human mind is not, we're not programmed uh, to be alone. <laughs> you never realize that until until we are we're sort of forced to do that. But yeah, I've been, I've been enjoying... Um, a little bit of, of peace and quiet. I've noticed that, you know, spending a lot less money on iced coffee than I would when I go outside, <laughs> which has been good for my bank account. But other yeah. than that, like, alhamdulillah, I, I recognize that I have it a lot easier than a lot of other people during this incredibly difficult moment. Alhamdulillah. Yeah, no, it, it's really frustrating. Um, even over here, it, the mask mandate was just recently... Um, enforced Mm -hmm. which is really frustrating like that should have happened Mm -hmm. a long time ago and now it's really gotten out of control um and we're not on complete lockdown like there's just like a two-week kind of like hybrid work stay at home type of thing but it's just very frustrating how things are being handled and it's like we don't want this to like extend you know just can we get can everyone just like cooperate and just you know do what we need to do and it's like very frustrating but you know inshallah um Allah knows best there's a reason for everything and you know I was having this conversation with my family Mm -hmm. and my friend other friends too that um there's you know with with every difficulty Allah has put ease in it and you know there's all these like negative parts of COVID but then like the positive parts are definitely there too and I feel like um it's just, you know, being able to tap into that. Um, and Alhamdulillah, like you mentioned, like, you know, we're definitely in a, in a better situation yeah. than a lot of people. I think it's, it's, so, it's so important that you said, so like, that there's, there's opportunity here. I think it's, I, I don't ever want to say that, like, when, some, when something huge happens and people suffer, like, oh, this is an opportunity. Because, like, you never want to say that there's an opportunity when someone is hurting, right? I recognize that this pandemic has you know taken people's loved ones from them and made people's lives incredibly difficult but yeah the falling apart of like a lot of our social and like economic systems and exposing like how corporations and governments like sometimes do not absolutely care about people they don't care about their employees like amazon does not care about its employees like walmart doesn't care about its employees like recognizing Mm -hmm. that has like made way for a lot of difficult conversations that activists and organizers have been having for decades now people seem to be more like open to it because they realize just how unsustainable the way things used to be done you know was so like alhamdulillah like progressive and more empathetic and compassionate policies are now being understood as like not just pie in the sky not radical but like absolutely necessary and the more rational thing to do you know it doesn't seem crazy to have a healthcare plan yeah. that protects everybody now. It doesn't seem crazy to, you know, make um, places more accessible for people with disabilities and poor people and things like that. Because the way we used to host space and the way we used to take care of our cities and our governments never used to work. And now it's not holding up at this moment. So there's, there's like you said, like there seems to be like Allah knows best. And I'm sure like there are so many people who, who were trying to have their voices heard before this pandemic are, are going to have to be heard at this moment and, and, and definitely afterwards, inshallah. Yeah. yeah. Inshallah. 
Can you elaborate more about the importance of activism and, and you know, being mm-hmm. vocal? I used about to actually struggle with the word and I'm, I'm still in this moment struggling with it because I have been described by other people as an activist. I've used that word about myself, but I don't know if I want to continue doing that mm-hmm. because one of the things that I realized is when other people, I don't want to just say white men because white women and, and other brown and black folks do this too, but when white men in particular write about the way that they want to see the world or that the, the way, the ideas that they have or the issue that they care about, no one calls them an activist. Absolutely mm-hmm. no one calls them an activist. Yeah, they, yeah, they are, that's, that's they are opinionated, yeah. they are thinkers, they are contributors, but they're never activists. But if I write something about um, voting or if I write something about, you know, not letting eco-fascist language, you know, creep up on you and recognizing that you can fall into the trap of perpetuating eco-fascism and not doing that, you know, in a moment of, you know, the climate crisis and the pandemic sort of coalescing. Um, If I write about, you know, and I've I've written Mm -hmm. about a million and one things. I wrote about the niqab ban in Quebec before the hijab ban happened. Um, And that's, described as activism rather than, you know, a providing of a different perspective. You know, it's funny if you write about, if you write about something like, for example, if you write about um, why the American government should keep giving money for weapons to Israel, then you are just a policy writer. But if you write, hey, maybe we should stop giving weapons to money, as both Jewish and Muslim writers have said, then then you are an activist, you're a Palestinian mm-hmm. activist. But it's like, wait a minute, you're not a Palestinian activist. There are Palestinian activists, but this person is just providing yeah. another perspective. It will never it will never not amaze me or make me laugh that when black and brown people write something as simple as stop killing us or this is unsustainable, that people will come around and say, that's activism. Mm-hmm. But if someone says, hey, here's why the police should be able to use no-knock warrants, or here's why Israel does need billions of dollars in what will obviously go to weapons and weapons manufacturing. Then that's like, you're just being a sensible policy writer. And so for me, I have sort of struggled with being called an activist. I don't, I have done like organizing before. I have, you know, been a part of, I have contributed to movements and things like that, but I don't, I don't know if I am going to continue to call myself that when there are people who are like on the street every day, people who like actually put their body in harm's way in front of the police. I don't know if I can call myself an activist when that person is like doing that. Do you know what I mean? I think it would be taking away from and sort of Mm -hmm. disrespecting like the work that they do because the young woman who goes to a sit-in in front of the, you know, Toronto police department or whatever and I, the person who writes about why that sitting is important, we're two different people and that's okay. You know, so I don't, I, I think that I'm, my best yeah. asset has, and I think will always be like, inshallah, my ability to like, write about what's going on and connect it to history and like, encourage people to make that connections for themselves. If I go to a protest and I have been to protest, then like, that's my business. <laughs> that's on my time. But if I write about it, then that's like, yeah. I think my yeah. role, I, I genuinely feel like that's my contribution to the issues that I care about is explaining them to other people is starting conversations with other people. 
but there are people who who do do like physical and I don't want to I don't want to sort of limit activism to the physical because for financial and ability reasons like for people if you're Mm -hmm. a disabled person like you you can't go to a sit-in like for your own safety right so I don't want to I don't want to limit it to physical things but there are people who do do organizing work there are people who show up to city hall there are people who you know um collect mutual aid funds there are people who um collect you know we're we're sort of heading into the winter time now in Canada and our winters are very brutal and there are people who collect you know winter boots and jackets and things like that and I donate I amplify I do things like that but I don't think that that's that's activism you know there's a difference between what I do and what an activist does and activism is incredibly important because nobody has ever gotten anything by asking nicely (laughs) you know everything that we enjoy alhamdulillah Mm -hmm. was because someone else was brave enough to ask for it you know someone else was brave enough to be like hey this doesn't always have to be this way here's what we can do there's such an imagination that activists and organizers have that I as a writer absolutely admire like mashallah the ability to envision what could be the the ability to envision the like a future that you are not entirely sure about but you're willing to fight for it because it's better than what is now is such a like a gift and I write about that I write about that vision I write about that imagination I encourage other people to look at it but it's not me at the forefront like with that and I I would just like my work to be yeah you know amplifying those people they don't even necessarily need my amplification what I do is like just like weave it what I do is like connect it connect the dots but those dots were like there way before I was and you know inshallah they'll be there way after I'm gone as well so I I think that like and I think a lot of young people on the internet have to like ask themselves if they are activists or or not like there needs to be like a serious respect and reconsideration for Mm -hmm. the word you know there's also like I said that weird thing that happens where we just like slap the word onto young brown and black people who are just asking for like dignity then they're suddenly all of a sudden activists or we, you yeah. know, I'm trying to remember her name, but there was a, a, a black writer who wrote for the Toronto Star and she said the same thing. She was like, why am I an activist writer? I'm just a black writer who writes about black issues. That doesn't make me an activist, right? The, the, word, the word needs a, the word yeah. needs to be seriously yeah. reconsidered in our, our public sphere. And so that's why I personally, I don't regard myself as an activist for the reasons that I just mentioned, but activism will always have an important role and there is this question of like well does the writing count as activism does spreading does writing about activists count as activism I don't know I've I've had people message me or mm-hmm. email me saying that like something I wrote has encouraged them to think differently about something is that activist work I don't know necessarily I know it's valuable work but I don't know if it's activism work in particular but I I will always be in sort of struggle thinking about that because it's important. Like these are definitions that have a serious implication for the way that we live our lives and how we fight for our lives. So activism is important, but I, I will always sort of have a, a difficult but important, like important, difficult relationship with that word. Thank you for sharing that. That that's really insightful, and uh, you know, I never looked at it looked at it like that way or perceived it that oh, way. Thank and you for I'm letting me ramble. That, so thank you for sharing that, and 
That's really important. No, it's seriously, it's so important. And I think like all of the things you mentioned completely agree with all of that. And I think we do associate, um, you know, words or labels with certain things. And I think it's really Mm -hmm. powerful to be able to be critical of that and think deeper Mm -hmm. about it and what it means and what the impact of it is. So thank you for that. I want to end with some of your poetry. Would you be willing to share some of your poetry? Uh, I have a few poems. I do have a poem titled Home that I wrote about my city, Toronto. Mm -hmm. So here it is. The fruit vendor sings his cart's contents as the steady beat of footsteps accompanies his tune. Laughter reverberates. Pieces of conversation add to the symphony. Tapping of cantaloupes and watermelons sound like the beating of war drums, but there is no war here. We make our own music, singing excuse me's and salams and thank you's to the beat of head nods and knowing glances. It's tradition. The ceremonial act of holding doors and smiling at strangers on this holy Tuesday afternoon. We dance down our streets. The sidewalks are made of Rosetta Stone. There are more languages than I can count. A diplomatic exchange over parking spots takes place. There are street signs, but we don't really ever read them. We know where we are. Yeah, that's my poem, Home. That's so beautiful. I That has so much imagery. <laughs> I was you. closing my eyes as you were reading it. I just... <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I oh, I just love poetry so much. And I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for, you know, being willing to be a part of this conversation. Oh, thank and you so much. The community. Uh, alhamdulillah, this was such a wonderful conversation. I truly enjoyed speaking with you as well. Um, this community, this platform, this objective that you have means so much to me as a young Muslim woman. And I am in awe of you, mashallah. So thank you for for this and thank you for all that you do inshallah rue and you have the utmost success and continue to thrive um may we know exactly who we are and may we have the best of intentions in everything that we do as artists and as creators i mean and jazakallah khair thank you god bless you i mean jazakallah khair may allah bless you and your family and increase in you and Please remember us in your thoughts. Oh, I, I hope inshallah we can meet in person so one much. day. Inshallah, you and yours are well during this <laughs> incredibly difficult time. Um, and I, of course, you guys are in my dua and everyone listening to this as well. Oh I'm wishing the best for all of us. 